Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Rappencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. There were two stories that stood out from the national parks this past week. One involved the tasing of a Native American visitor to Petroglyph National Monument who went off trail and refused to obey a ranger's orders. The other involved nine pounds of human excrement that rangers cleaned out of the narrows at Zion National Park. That's right, nine pounds. As beautiful and rejuvenating as national parks can be, they also attract a measure of news that is startling, sad, disconcerting, and even alarming. How can these incidents be avoided? More rangers? More education? More respect? What are your thoughts? You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we're discussing the Appalachian National Scenic Trail. 2021 marks 100 years since forester and planner Benton McKay penned an article that conceived a trail connecting farmlands, mountain ranges, camps, and towns along the Appalachian Mountain Range. 16 years later, the Appalachian Trail was completed, traversing through 14 eastern states from Maine to Georgia for more than 2,100 miles. Each year, an estimated 3 million people take to the trail. Some folks attempt to hike the whole thing from end to end in one big trip. Some tackle chunks of it at a time in no particular order. And many are content to spend a day or two wandering through stunning mountain ridgelines and secluded white pine and hemlock forests. In honor of this anniversary, Lynn Riddick met up with one AT enthusiast who has experienced the colossal physical and mental challenges of tackling the entire trail and its immense rewards. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. We are park stewards to ensure our most wild and historic places remain for generations to come to safeguard our preferred arena for adventure, reflection, and inspiration. We donate 4% of our proceeds, and that's revenues, not profits, to support America's most wild and historic places. We are Wild Tribute, apparel for the parks. Find out more at wildtribute.com. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. My pace was quick. The woods around me seemed only a blur as I concentrated on placing my feet around exposed rocks and roots in the trail. With a short, cleared stretch ahead, I allowed myself to glance upward. Several yards ahead, I noticed the outline of a spider web across the trail. As I walked closer, I saw the architect and builder of the web, a large, red-rumped spider, for the lack of a Latinus namus, 
My game plan for the hundreds of webs I had confronted to this point was to crash mercilessly through the silky blockade and let the spider beware. This time I stopped. Those were the musings of a 22-year-old Maryland man who hiked the entire 2,190-mile Appalachian National Scenic Trail in 1980, by himself for the most part, all the way from Maine to Georgia. He journaled daily, wrote letters to friends from the trail, and submitted regular articles to the Baltimore Sun, documenting the physical challenges, the humorous encounters with other hikers, and his increasing awareness of his relationship to the natural world. The web was not complete. The spider was building this one. I guess I had never thought about how those webs actually got there. I continued to observe. From the large outside circle, the strands that reached toward the center act as a framework for the structure. The spider was in the process of working its way around the inside with hundreds of smaller strands, each placed one at a time, connecting two of the larger ones. While I don't mean to get too descriptive in my spider encounter, it is just an example of the life I've noticed over my long life from Maine. These observations have made me realize we are sharing this world with so much more than our cranky neighbor or the crowds at Kmart. That hiker is Brian Hayek, who is now 62 years old. A high school-era friend of mine, Brian and I met up on a windy November day in western Maryland to retrace some of his steps 40 years later. We were in the South Mountains, which is the northern extension of the Blue Ridge Mountain region of the larger Appalachian Range. The Maryland segment of the trail is 37 miles long. I was curious to talk with Brian about the experiences of a journey that not only never leave a hiker, but become part of who they are. A journey that is also equivalent to hiking up Mount Everest from sea level and back down again 16 times. Our meeting point was Reno Monument near Fox's Gap. It's one of many historical sites along the trail and a location of Civil War combat in 1862. A granite monument there commemorates the death of Union General Jesse Reno. Hi, Brian. Welcome to The Traveler. It's great to be here, Lynn. Thanks for... Thanks for having me and for uh, letting me reminisce about this old friend of mine, the Appalachian Trail. You hiked the entire trail starting in May 1980, and you finished in October 1980. You were 22 when you finished, and you made the decision to start in Maine and finish in Georgia. Tell me what went into that decision, and also how did the whole trip come about? The Appalachian Trail just totally fascinated me from the very first time I heard about it. I mean, I was on a, a... a church uh, youth group hike up in uh, Pine Grove Furnace State Park, which is in Pennsylvania, just north of here. And the youth group leader pointed in both directions on the trail and just told me that this side of the trail goes all the way to Georgia and this side of the trail goes all the way to Maine. And I never, I could never get that out of my head. It's like, how fascinating is that, that a path in the woods would go that far? From that point on, it became an intriguing uh, thing for me that, wow, some people could actually walk that whole way. But it wasn't a thing then. I mean, it wasn't, hundreds of people weren't doing it then. It was a a few select folks each year were doing it. And then a guy um, named um, Ed Garvey, who was a profound hiker in this area, he wrote a book called Appalachian Hiker, which was geared especially towards thru-hiking and thru-hiking the Appalachian Trail specifically. And that became sort of like a, um, 
a little a Bible for those of us who were inspired to do this. And um, that initial youth group trip and combined with this book just totally fascinated me. So, of course, I told my mom about it. And it's like, I really want to do this. And along with the uh, aspirations for being a football player and baseball player and that kind of a thing, okay, well, you, you, you think about that and maybe uh, after college you can you can do that, thinking I would just forget about it. But I never did. And six days after I graduated from the University of Maryland, I was on the Appalachian Trail, which leads into the your first question, which was, why did I go f- north to south when south to north is by far the most popular? People like to go south to north because of the seasons. Um, I think you can follow the warm weather a little bit more easily um, from south to north. I think that's debatable. But the biggest reason was because I graduated, I had, I had, to, I had to get a degree. So, you know, I, I couldn't graduate from the University of Maryland until um, in May. And that's really a late start down in Georgia. Most people in Georgia start on April Fool's Day or before that. And um, I needed to, you know, get that sheepskin. So I began to look into other options. And the north to south thing suddenly made pretty much sense. And you know, in retrospect, I'm really happy I did it that way because I was never really um, in any kind of cold weather in, in Maine. Um, the black flies were a little bit bad, but I hit the Smokies in the peak of the colors. Although I grew up in Maryland, I had never been on the AT, as it's affectionately known. Who better than Brian to give me a guided, albeit short, tour? Tell me a little bit about this part of the trail, and um, can you describe it for me? So we're, the Maryland section of the Appalachian Trail is what was actually one of my favorites, um, just because the hiking was easy. We had just gotten off 200 miles of rocky ridge walking in Pennsylvania, and we got to more of, more of a softer, cushiony trail here in Maryland, and there's just a lot of you know, the terrain's not bad. There's some great views, um, some really nice shelters, some springs, and then a couple of really nice views from some of the, some, some of the rock outcroppings. It takes quite a village to manage and maintain the AT's 2,200 miles in 14 different states. So a number of organizations have formed a cooperative management system. They include the National Park Service, the U.S. Forest Service, other federal and state agencies, the nonprofit Appalachian Trail Conservancy, and 31 volunteer-based trail maintaining clubs. In addition to the, uh, the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, which is the governing body of the whole trail, there are many trail clubs that are more localized to the states, and they do a tremendous job of maintaining their sections of the trail. I mean, this this trail just doesn't stay the way it is easily with all the storms and winters and log falls and overgrowth of brush. This trail needs a tremendous amount of maintenance. And these uh, Appalachian Trail Clubs that come out and maintain these, they, they put in tremendous amounts of man hours, volunteers do. And 
if, if they did if they didn't do what they did we could not walk on this trail and um i just wanted to shout out to them that we're really thankful for that we came up to this log that's across the trail and it's got some x's carved in any idea what this is the x's that are carved on the log are well it's twofold the log is in on the trail to prevent erosion um, water running down the trail will hit the log and run off to the side of the trail instead of continuing to run down the trail and create um, a ditch. Um, the reason the X's are on the top of the log is that when it's wet, it's less slippery on your boots if you happen to walk on the, on the log. Um, just a little, a little extra the trail maintenance folks did to uh, safeguard. That's interesting. And here's a trailblaze. Trailblazes are um, six inches high and I think uh, usually two inches wide and um, they're very uniform throughout the entire trail, although, you know, some, some blazes are fresher than others, but they should always be somewhere near being in sight of one another. So from one blaze, you should always be able to see the next blaze. Not always the case, believe me, but um, they try to uh, maintain that, that ratio. Brian and I hiked down to the original Rocky Run shelter along a steep hill in spring. The log shelter was built in 1940 by the Civilian Conservation Corps and was finished the following year by the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club. That club was later presided over by the aforementioned book author and trail enthusiast, Ed Garvey. There are only 15 remaining shelters on the trail built by the CCC, and this is one of them. Tell me what we're looking at right now. We're standing at Rocky Run Shelter, which is one of about, I don't know, 150, 200 three-sided uh, rustic shelters that are, are placed along the Appalachian Trail for thru-hikers. Not always used by just thru-hikers, um, but that's what they're meant for. Um, this one is Rocky Run. This is the old Rocky Run Shelter. They've A lot of times they've uh, been replacing shelters as they go through the years. Um, this is one of the places where the old shelter still exists along with the new shelter because it's still in pretty decent shape. It's just pretty small and uh, they've been improved over the years. Do you remember staying here? I remember staying here many times because it's near my home. We're, we're, we're hanging out near the house right now. So, you know, a lot of tune-up hikes here, you know, a lot of... Um, through Maryland hikes that we stayed here. It's got a great spring next to it, one of the best on the whole AT. So I've stayed in the shelter many times. Um, on my through hike in 1980, I stayed in the area, but there were people occupying the actual shelter. So I was just camped that night. But um, yeah, it's got, it's sort of like uh, coming home at the Rocky Run shelter. Do you remember what you did that night when you saw that the shelter was full? Did you just pitch your sleeping bag on the ground or? Well, I have a tent. And so, you know, whereas I, I, like, I like to stay at shelters because it provides a lot more room to roam around and um, it's undercover. You got a roof over your head. Plus, the other thing is that the Appalachian Trail is such a social experience that um, a lot of times other through hikers would also be stopping here and you could look in each other's guidebooks and like tell each other what's ahead for each other and it was sort of a, uh, a gathering as well. One of the coolest things I brought, uh, which I still have, is the Appalachian Trail data book from 1980, which 
which is a sort of an, um, a collapsed, condensed version of all the points, like road crossings and peaks and gaps and um, places like where shelters are and springs. And it's all compiled by miles where these things are. This is like really what I use the most every day and where I wanted to be and how. So like for instance, um, when we cross the Susquehanna River, then there's a tenth of a mile later is the Juniata River crossing, and then a mile later is Duncannon, Pennsylvania, which is a t trail town. So folks would get into my data book and they would write, people who have come from the south and knew where I was going, they would write like, okay, well the fireman's basement in Duncannon is open to hikers. So they would write that in there. So I would have that. And then another um, seven-tenths of a mile was another road crossing. And then another mile after that, a 3.1, is Hawk Rock, which is a, you know, a vista on the Appalachian Trail. So I'd be able to, like, plan all these mileages, um, how far I wanted to get. At 4.9 is Thelma Marks Memorial Shelter. So I would know there was a shelter in, in five miles from the Susquehanna River. And this went on, this, this book includes mileages all the way down from Maine to Georgia. So this was something I used not only every day, but like multiple times every day and knowing where I was and knowing where I wanted to go. Next stop was the Rocky Run Spring, adjacent to the old shelter. No, I'm not going to the bathroom. This is a uh, an outstanding spring on the Appalachian Trail. A lot of times, you know, the, the Appalachian Trail goes over ridge tops, and therefore, it's not as the water is not as frequent as sometimes we might like. But um, every once in a while, there's an advertised spring, and um, this is one of the best. Um, this would fill your canteen up. This would fill a liter bottle up in about you know eight ten seconds. So always welcome when you see H2O. On now the trail. it's a little suspicious because I see the spring coming out of the rock, but then there's a, a length, a four foot length of PVC pipe where the water is coming from the creek over some rocks. Is that a concern at all? Was that, do you remember that being here? When I was through hiking, we didn't have a lot of this PVC stuff. This has been installed later by like Boy Scout troops or other trail maintenance uh, clubs to, I guess, make it easier to fill your, to fill your uh, bottles up. If you're talking about um, bacteria-type concerns, because the pipe is not exactly um, the cleanest-looking thing in the world, that's never really a concern. But the thing is, is that you're always purifying or treating water anyway, which is also a more recent uh, practice. When I hiked the trail in 1980, unbelievably, I treated water twice in six months in five and a half months. So um, I don't know whether more beavers are pooping in the streams lately, but, I, but you know, Giardia and other, other microorganisms are certainly a concern and it's certainly worth the time to purify or treat your water. But it wasn't really a thing back in 1980 and I never got sick. So maybe I'm lucky I don't know exactly what to attribute that to, but um, it made it a little easier because I just dipped out of streams and just drank. We made our way back up the hill to a newer shelter. So right now we're in the new, the newer Rocky Run shelter, which is um, 
really just about a mile off of um, a roadway. But basically for maintenance purposes, it's easier to maintain. But this is a much bigger, more modern shelter. And when I say modern, we're talking like it was probably built in the around the 2000, early 2000s. I mean, it's still probably 15, 20 years old, but it's much bigger. It can fit many more hikers. It's got a picnic table with a roof over the head, whereas the older shelter that we just looked at just was basically just a small bunk. And it's got benches. It's got usually a, a nice fire pit outside. Sometimes the fire pits are even um, sort of have a partial roof over them, which is really great too. And there's also a lot of campsites nearby, just in case in the busy thru-hiker season, which in Maryland is around the end of May, beginning of June, there's a lot of overflow. So people can camp nearby and still take, make use of the shelter for um, you know, food restuffing and the picnic table and stuff like that. So it's got a kind of a cool loft. Uh, Four yeah, rungs on a ladder that go um, up to a loft. It's basically done that way, just to add bunk space. Instead of just having one uh, floor, um, now you've got a little ladder up to a, a completely uh, second floor where you can probably fit five or six more other campers. It, you know, it gets crowded, no doubt about it. And everybody's, there's always some snorers and people who stay up later than others, but it's, the Appalachian Trail hiking community is a pretty amazing group of, of, of hikers who come from so many diverse backgrounds and reasons why they're doing this, but they all sort of come together and there's a really good camaraderie as this little, this little pod of hikers moves up the coast from uh, most of the way south to north. There's so much information out there now, so many books, so much online, and really there wasn't a, a, well, I shouldn't say there wasn't a whole lot, but your options for information were limited 40 years ago. So what went into the preparation of your trip? Well, you know, I wish I had a really nice long answer for you on that one, Lynn, Um, but I didn't really have as much preparation as you would think. I mean, I was not an avid backpacker. Uh, by the time I, I attempted this um, trek. One of my best friends, Roman Marecki, at the time, um, was a pretty avid backpacker. And so we sort of got together with this little Appalachian Trail dream. And um, so we sort of took some tune-up hikes uh, that's the, earlier that spring. And, you know, you're right. There wasn't a lot of preparation information out there. So we made a lot of mistakes in the way we prepared. I mean, just one example, we took this ridiculous poncho that made, had allowances for going over your pack in the back. And it like snapped on the sides. And it was ridiculous. It was just, the slightest amount of wind, you just became a sail. And um, it didn't keep out any rain. And... It was just a ridiculous, it was a, it was a bad mistake, and we got, I, I shipped it back home before too long. I, I read the book that Ed Garvey wrote front and back eight times just because he also provided an account of the actual trip itself as well as how to prepare for it. So I really tried to go by the things that he was talking about um, having on hand um, as far as, you know, your, your gear, your sleeping, your clothes, we really almost just 
learn by trial by fire. I wasn't really, to be honest, I wasn't really that prepared for this trip. But when you're 22 years old and fairly healthy, you get to be fairly resilient. And here's another important part about the Appalachian Trail. It's a somewhat of a forgiving path. Um, when you're talking about long trails and you're comparing it to like the Pacific Crest Trail or the Continental Divide Trail, those traverse much more uh, larger, larger areas of wilderness with higher elevations and lower elevations. And um, the Appalachian Trail is almost a social footpath. I mean, it, it goes from Maine to Georgia, but it traverses so many populated areas and parks and towns. There are like several towns that goes right, right through the main street. And, you know, you can, you can always stop and you can always buy things and you can always ship things back to your, to, to your home. And so, you know, in that regard, I think it was a, it was a good hike to take because we were able to adapt as we went along. You had a setback early in the hike. Your friend Roman got an injury. Um, take us back to that moment in time and what you were thinking at that point. Well, you know, the, the Appalachian Trail has, has some easy parts and it has some tough parts. Um, one of the tough pro well, for me, and obviously for Roman, um, the toughest part for me was a, a, a 30 or 40 mile stretch of mountains right at the, at the southern end of Maine called the Mahusics. Basically, there are no switchbacks. You're just going straight up and straight down um, three and 4,000 foot uh, mountains. It was, it's pretty unrelenting. And, and Roman, um, throughout that time, had some Achilles problems with his boot. I'm not exactly sure what, even to this day, what caused um, his, his, his foot problem, but he had to like take his boots off and, and use tennis shoes and some of the worst parts. And we got to um, Gorham, New Hampshire, which is just outside, just north of the White Mountains. And he, he got a ride into a clinic at that point. And he came back and he said his trip was over. And not only was his trip over, but he really shouldn't even be standing up. So the next morning, Roman, Roman took a uh, bus back from Gorham, New Hampshire. And in the, in the meantime, we had to completely change our gear around because we were sharing all of our stuff. So we had to like completely gear up for me to go on by myself, um, which was never not an option, uh, frankly. I mean, uh, even though Roman was the most experienced hiker and I was pretty unexperienced, we had put in about three or four weeks now, and I just, you know, it wasn't, an, I, I had to go on, and Roman wouldn't have stood for anything less. Not to mention the fact I was, I was writing a, a series for the Baltimore Sun at the time. I was um, a journalism major in Maryland, so I was able to write a, uh, a series that, where I actually wrote stories for the Baltimore Sun from the trail, and they printed them as I was walking um, with my own photographs, and um, and it was, I, you know, I couldn't say, okay, folks, well, Roman's stopping, so I am too. Well, I want to ask you a little bit more about that. So when Roman got injured and was tapping out, 
you resolved to do it on your own. Were you afraid? You did the rest of the trail, which was, you know, five months worth by yourself. How did that go? Well, you know, Roman and I were best friends. Um, and, you know, it was, it was, it was difficult. This was meant to be a hike that we were going to do together and that we, um, you know, we sort of, this was sort of our dream. So this, that was very difficult on, on a number of levels to, to make that departure because, you know, his, his side of that dream was, was going to be a little bit short, you know, was, was not going to happen. So I felt just horrible about that. Um, and I also, to be honest, was a little bit apprehensive about my ability to take this on all by myself because it was never meant to be all by myself. So it was very difficult to continue on, especially because ahead of me lurked probably some of the toughest hiking on the whole trail with uh, Mount Washington and that whole presidential range, which has some of the worst weather in America. So it was, it was, a, it was a difficult thing to go on but you know I don't think it was ever a decision it was something that we both wanted me to do not just me now your trip was a long time ago although you've been back to the Appalachian Trail many times for day trips or maybe some overnight trips but your 40 year ago trip was well documented you snail mailed articles on a regular basis to the Baltimore Sun you wrote letters to friends including me, and you kept a journal, which you estimate to be... 90,000 words. <laughs> 90, I mean, I just, I, 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 you know, I, I, counted, I counted the words on one page and then I multiplied it by that many pages. I think it's about that. It was, I, wrote, I wrote every night in, my, in, in the shelter or wherever I was camped um, about the day's events. And I'm just so happy I did that because, you know, and it's, it's like the size of a book. I mean, I don't know if it's a book anybody would want to read because... I did a lot of complaining and things like that, but <laughs> it, it was basically written in the form of a letter to my parents. Um, that's basically how it was written. But it was, I, you know, I've been reading it this month just because it's been this like oh, this anniversary, and I wanted to sort of just rehash some of the things that went, went on. And I'm just so glad I did it because um, everything comes back when you're, even though it was 40 years ago. Everything comes back, and and it, you're almost like you're 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 walking it again in some ways. Well, there was one time where we were totally out of water, and it was 103 degrees in Connecticut, and we were just just almost on our knees trying to find water, and we came to a, a road um, crossing, and about a quarter mile up from the um, the crossing was a was a restaurant, and so whereas I was almost you know in a in a dire situation with my with my hydration 15 minutes later i was ordering peking duck and um having there's some person who was in charge of keeping our water glasses full and they just pretty much stood by our table the whole time and it was just sort of a sort of odd twist of events when you're on the appalachian trail i'm lynn riddick and i'll have more with brian hayek avid backpacker and AT alum after this short break. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. 
The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. I'm back with Brian Hayek and more of his adventures on the Appalachian Trail. How did you get the Baltimore Sun to run your stories? So I worked on the Baltimore Sun uh, copy desk as, a, as an intern the year before that from, as part of my journalism um, uh, coursework at the University of Maryland. And I pitched it. I just pitched it to them as I was leaving that internship that summer before. Um, I said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about doing this, and I, I think uh, it would be novel to have a, to someone write this while they were walking. And they, they latched onto it, and it really turned out to be a successful series. Um, I was really happy about it. I wrote articles from the, from the trail. I included some of my fancy Instamatic photos that um, were pretty bad, but they still published them and because they were, they, were from, they were from me. And they actually tracked me on a map the entire way. Each, each article, there was like a little graphic with a, a little arrow pointing to where I was. And, um, and believe it or not, they, I don't know how I pulled this off, but they um, actually put my finishing article on the front page of the Baltimore Sun on November 1st or 2nd of 1980. You had probably amassed quite a following at that point. Uh, Baltimore Sun readers were probably following your story. and You know, it was a pretty popular, um, it was a pretty popular series from what I heard. And... Um, yeah, lots of people were were talking to me about it. I was like a mini celebrity for 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 a little while, which was sort of odd. Um, and when I got back, um, I was actually on a couple of radio shows where um, they were asking me questions, and people were calling in and asking questions. And it was it was kind of surreal because I'm not really a celebrity. I just walked a little ways. So you were hiking alone, and. 
you mentioned how the Appalachian Trail is a real social trail. People are very friendly that you see. How important was it that you had some contact with other hikers as you were going along? And was there a stretch of days you didn't see anybody? Well, it's kind of funny because when you're, when you're, when you're going south to north with everyone else, you're sort of like a traveling community that's walking together. And you create probably much stronger bonds. And one thing we haven't gotten into, but everyone seems to have a trail name, which even back in 1980, there were trail names. Now it's like, if you don't have one, you're just, everyone has trail names. I, I never had a trail name. What would your I, trail I, name be? And I don't know. Well, usually <laughs> they, they, other people sometimes give it to you because of a weird habit or a, or a hometown food you like. I mean, it comes a lot. It, they come about in a lot of weird ways. But I never had a trail name, and um, I'm not. You know, I even wrote an article about that. Um, I'm just Brian hiking on the trail. <laughs> um, so, but there's this community going south to north um, of of hikers. And it's great. I mean, for me, I was, I got to talk to a lot of people, but I'm going north to south, and I was one of the only people who did it that summer. And so I'm meeting people going the other direction. And so I'm not, unless, unless we happen to be at the same shelter where we can talk about what's ahead for each person, I really didn't have these like long-lasting relationships with people. I was sort of like more like the 15 minute conversation and uh, I'm on my way. But I was a very valuable commodity for those who were going south to north because for many of them, I was the first person they met who could tell them what was ahead of them all the way up to Maine. And um, I became very popular for that reason just because they wanted in info, the 411 on, on what was ahead of them as far as not just uh, mountains and climbs and things like that, but also like what what stores were open at what times and you know what what little uh trail magic what what little trail magic surprises were ahead did you have any best days did you have any worst days <laughs> best days and worst days the answer is definitely yes um there are times you've felt really up and there are times you felt really down which was funny because most of these good days, bad days were were because of just my mental state, more so than than a physical thing. I mean, I had my, I had some foot ailments, you know, nothing major. One of my boots was was acting up, and it was causing some problems. But the physical things weren't really the problem so much as the isolation of of hiking by yourself and some of the creature comforts that you miss, such as a, a hot shower or um, contact with, with your friends and family. Uh, probably, you know, my, my, my best days were probably when I was like reading letters, <laughs> reading letters in a, in a town um, where I went to a post office and I'd get a box with, with brownies from my mom and letters from friends and and, and of course, when you're when you reach the top of a mountain, or you get to a uh, lunch at a great s spot where there's a stream and an idyllic camping spot, I mean, all those things are certainly um, uplifting as well. The downsides were usually just before I got to a town or something where I stopped, and I'd just be a total crudball 
and I just just needed a shower so bad, and I knew I didn't really have a great odor. That didn't make me feel too great, and um, you know, I had some ailments, and and if I hadn't really talked with anybody in a while, or if it was raining, I'm not a big rain walker, so. Um, walking more than two days in the rain was sort of depressing because nothing gets dry. Fortunately, I think it was it was a really dry summer that summer, and I, I, I think there were only like 19 total days where it like rained all day out of the entire five and a half months. And, and that included five consecutive days right before I finished in Georgia. And I remember laying in my tent singing A Rainy Night in Georgia um, vividly um, (laughs) because it was just five days of just continuous rain. And it was just it just it it plays with your head, man. You just like, is the sun ever going to come out? Um, So those were some down. Those were some down times. But um, I tried to keep an even keel as much as I could. So I want you to read an excerpt from a letter that you sent me. So go for it. Here it is. Okay, so this is in July some, sometime. I haven't had time to write anyone in two weeks, so I've got some writing ahead of me. I have really been down in the dumps, though, through Connecticut and Massachusetts and especially New York. I'm on the Hudson now. Some really interesting things happened out here, Lynn. About a week ago, I paid $15 for essentially just a shower. The really funny thing was I probably would have paid 30 I never felt so cruddy in my life, and I felt like there was peanut butter in my beard. But last night, I stayed in a monastery of all places and got fed two huge meals, got my own room, bathroom, shower, and even laundry machines for nothing, free. Wow, that was great. This morning, I ate for an hour and a half straight. Try it sometime. Do you remember anything else about that monastery? Do you know what it was? It was called the Graymore Monastery. I remember everything about that because that was a very, that was a highlight of all the through hikers. Um, there was a monastery in New York called Graymore Monastery, and for whatever reason, they catered to through hikers. They would give you your own room, shower, um, laundry facilities, two meals. And for all for nothing, and you really weren't even obliged to for any kind of you know religious activities except you know to be respectful. And it was just you know because you write in these journals in these shelters and you write about what's ahead and what's Graymore Monastery was like people were looking forward to this for like weeks. And so I certainly remember that uh, very well. I also remember the the fifteen dollar shower because I have never felt dirtier and cruddier than I did than when I went up to that door of that hostel in Connecticut. It was, I, I, I had to have a shower. It was like, I don't know if you've ever felt like that, but it was like, if I didn't have a shower, I was just, I don't know what I would have done. What's interesting about the Appalachian Trail is that it offers a seemingly endless lesson in history. And history generally makes more sense when we are older. Have you come to appreciate the history of some of the parks and monuments and places of significance that you passed through? Well, sure. I mean, a lot of these things are very small. Like I remember in Bennington, Vermont, I was just wandering uh, after my hiking day was over um, in the town of Bennington, Vermont, and, um, and all of a sudden I came upon Robert Frost's grave. And I thought, wow, I know him. You know, there's some bigger, some bigger historic monuments along the trail, and then what I thought was 
really intriguing was some of the some of the smaller like gravestones of like settlers or people who were just um, in logging camps that um, their family has a has a little cemetery nearby. You just wonder what life was like in some of those like logging camps and mining camps. And of course, you know, in this area, we have a rich history of the Civil War. Um, even where we are sitting right now is near Fox's Gap, which is where a, a, a Civil War skirmish took place, I think, um, maybe just before Antietam. So, yes, yes, history, especially on the Appalachian Trail, which is the East Coast, where there's um, a lot more going on as far as history goes. There's much to be learned as you uh, traverse from, from Maine to Georgia. So you live very close to where we are right now, visiting, um, talking in this shelter. How often do you get out to the trail, and what's it feel like? I, you know, I've been blessed with the fact that I can still, I can still backpack. You know, everyone can do the math. If I graduated in 1980 and it was a 40-year anniversary, then, you know, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. But I am able to still get out and walk and backpack and sleep on the ground and do the things that. Um, you know, I love to do. So yeah, I, I, I love getting out here, not just in this area, but in the north, like in the, uh, you know, up in the um, in Pen central Pennsylvania has some great backpacking trails and out west, which is just an amazing place to, you know, to walk and be and, you know, get out away from the grid. Um, I, I still love to do it. And um, I'm just happy that I can. Yeah, I was going to ask, what's the most common question people ask you when they find out that you've done the trail? It's almost always, how long did it take you? How much did your pack weigh? And how many bears did you see? Um, <laughs> how many bears did you see? Not many, Lynn. Um, they're always forecast, but the only real bears I saw um, were in the Smokies, where they actually, at least at the time I hiked, they had a like chain link fence in front of the shelters where you're actually, you know, separated from bears by chain link, which is kind of ironic because you're, it's almost like you're in the zoo then <laughs> because you're the one in the cage and they're the ones roaming around outside. And we, we, we got a visit um, one night from a couple, a mama and her cub looking for uh, scraps, which was pretty cool because I hadn't, you know, I'd, I'd gone four and a half months at that point. I still hadn't seen a bear. Um, a lot of, lot of rattlesnakes, though, which, rattlesnakes. which actually scare me more than bears do because um, I'm just I'm afraid I'm going to, like, surprise one at some point. So you and I are friends, and we go way back. And um, I recall sharing a beer with you when you had just returned home. And in the course of our conversation, um, if my memory isn't foggy, which it could be, you told me that you were miserable about 60% of the time. <laughs> so my question, has time made the misery factor fade? I was miserable in the fact that the Appalachian Trail physically is something that, you know, a healthy person will adapt to. I mean, by the time I was three or four weeks in, I could climb any mountain and um, I could go 15, 20 miles a day like any other through hiker. It's just something that that happens. And if you want to finish the trail, you need to you need to put up those kind of miles every day to do it in when you're not, you know, in, in cold weather. 
Therefore, it becomes a men- it becomes a mental challenge, and that's where a lot of them. And you know, miserable is a is a kind of a harsh word, um, but that's where the tough part of the trail comes in because you don't really have days off. Uh, you can take a zero, as they call it, every once in a while, or you can have a short day every once in a while. But this is a seven day a week endeavor, and you are putting on your boots and you are putting on that pack and you are, you know, cooking your breakfast and leaving that shelter every morning. And you've got about 15, 20 miles to go. And um, you do it day after day after day after day. And most of the time you're doing it by yourself and you're talking to yourself. Um, and therefore, it, it became a mental, a mental challenge more than anything else. And I think maybe that's where some of that, that, that misery, as I may have uh, phrased it, came in, is the fact that I'd proved I could hike long distances. And it just became this endurance test. And... You know, I would highly recommend people take as much time as they can in planning a trip like this because you want to be able to go out to that side trail and look at that vista. Um, you want to maybe um, spend a little longer at that pond or that stream. And a lot of times we get obsessed with progress. How far can I get today? How far can I get tomorrow and by Thursday or Friday or Saturday? Um, and I think that kind of tarnishes the overall experience a little bit if you're not careful. So I think maybe that was what I was talking about, Lynn. (laughs) In her 2010 book, Becoming Odessa, Epic Adventures on the Appalachian Trail, the author Jennifer Farr Davis noted that while she was on her solo hike, just after she had graduated from college, she encountered an overwhelming number of other through hikers who were also recent college graduates. So she thought, well, that's easy to understand because most of these people, they don't have jobs yet, they um, don't have families, and it's easy for them to get away for five, six months. And then it dawned on her, she writes in her book, that she says, quote, "Um, more than that, I think college grads are called to the trail because we have a lot of figuring out to do. We've spent our entire lives under the influence of family, school, and religion, and we need to test our doctrines. The trail provides a place to sort through the fact and fiction of our childhoods, end quote. So did you do any sorting or assessing um, the influences of your young life? (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot of fancy language. And um, I'd like to be able to give you a nice deep answer on this one, Lynn, um, as far as, you know, I just needed some time to get myself together for a career and that kind of a thing, or maybe I was having a, you know, a lot of people have a lot of deep reasons why they do this trail. Um, I did not have deep reasons. I was fascinated by a, a, a footpath that stretched 2,100 miles, and you know, as I as I as I came to like backpacking, um, it just seemed to be a, a goal a challenge that I felt like was my own and that I could take on and achieve it. You know, I, I, I'm a kind of a goal guy and, um, this was just fascinating to me. And this was the time frame after college that was really the only real time I could think I could do it because when you, once you get into a job and a career and a family, um, and, you know, and as I found out, I mean, you, you can't take six months out of your life and do something like this. And, you know, in reality, 
it was difficult to even do it when I did it because here I was, you know, a journalism graduate along with nine million other journalism graduates looking for jobs right out of school, and I was going to be six months late. But you know, this was something that was was something that I I really wanted, and my my parents, you know, bless their hearts, they um, were on board with it, and I took it on, and that's. That's why I was out there, Lynn. <laughs> so what advice would the 62-year-old Brian give the 22-year-old... Well, you had to do the age. They had to do the math, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, what advice would the 62-year-old Brian give the 22-year-old Brian about hiking the trail? Well, I think we, 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 I talked about it a little bit earlier. I think um, give yourself as much time as you can, um, I think would be one of my, one of the biggest reasons, one of the biggest pieces of advice. The, um, the other thing I would say is find friendships along the trail, but don't be, but be flexible enough that if your hiking pace or your personalities or, or trail idiosyncrasies don't mesh, that you are also independent enough that you can also walk on your own. And you know, now in this day and age, I mean, the 62-year-old Brian um, didn't have a lot of technology that's available to the 22-year-old Brian. So I would take advantage of a lot of the, the safety and comfort options that are out there as far as gear and um, communications and um, even food options. So your advice is not going on deaf ears. You have a son who is in college and he has grown to share your passion for hiking. Tell me about what you guys do. Um, you recently did uh, the hike of the John Muir Trail. A lot, a lot of folks my age are not able to do, you know, the, the multi-day trips anymore. I'm sort of running out of, running out of friends for that. So fortunately, um, my, my son, who um, is now 19, he, um, you know, of course, I gave him a pretty high recommendation about backpacking. And we went out when we were little, and he was little, and he's loved it. And um, so he's one of the people I backpack the most with now. And of course, I have my 62 year old uphill speed, and he needs to wait for me at times. But I can still make the hills, and I can still do the miles when I need to. Now it's more like eight to ten miles a day rather than. 15 to 20, but we really enjoy it together, which is just, I can't even tell you how much that, that means to me that, that my son can do this with me. And that was capped off, as you said, Lynn, by our, um, our additional conquest of hiking the John Muir Trail, which I would also recommend anyone who is a backpacker to take on because it's, it's some of the most beautiful country in the country, and um, it's a 220-mile stretch from Yosemite National Park to Mount Whitney, which is the highest elevation in the contiguous USA. Um, and he and I, I mean, for me, this was probably because of my of my, of my age, perhaps, and the fact of, of the kind of um, terrain. This was probably to me a bigger goal and a bigger accomplishment than even the Appalachian Trail because it was just an amazing trip. It was, it, we, we did it in about uh, three and a half weeks over two summers 
because uh, of the permits were tough. Um, but standing on top of Mount Whitney at the end of that thing um, with my son, uh, 14,500 feet up, was probably one of the, the highlights of my life. So when you talk to people and they ask you why you hiked the Appalachian Trail, what do you tell them? What's out here for you? Well, I don't know if this is about this is a forty year thing or whether it's just a just a general thing, but I just like being out in the woods and hiking on trails, and it doesn't have to be the Appalachian Trail or the Appalachian Trail or any other trail. It could be you know it can be any trail. I just think trails themselves present an opportunity that is fleeting. The more the more and more um, time goes on, and that's just being able to get away, unplug, and enjoy um, the outdoors um, without a lot of outside interference and noise and and stuff like that. It's just so nice to be able to just um, walk through the woods. It sounds simple, it is simple, but I just think it's um, it's a it's a gift that that we all can take advantage of and. I will always feel a little bit more at home in the woods because of my trip on the Appalachian Trail. Well, Brian, it's been great talking with you and reminiscing, and um, I wish you a happy AT anniversary. And yeah, uh, it actually just passed about a week ago, but um, I actually um, coerced my my wife into um, taking a picture of me in my. In my kitchen, how pathetic is this? Of with my uh, fin- the the shirt I finished the trail on and the actual pack which I still have on my back in the kitchen. Um, so that's kind of sad, but I think there's a lot to be said. I think there's a lot to be said that you can still fit into your shirt. Yeah, I don't know. You, you mentioned I I could still button my shirt. I don't know if the buttoning part is uh, going to be possible, but. It did go over me, so um, that part was good. <laughs> anyway, it's been great talking with you. And you I- too, Lynn. Nice to catch up, and um, and I and I really um, appreciate the uh, opportunity to to talk about the trail, and um, hopefully, a lot of other folks will, you know, be able to uh, enjoy it for a long, long, long time. That's our year opening show for 2021. We hope you enjoyed it and hope you get a chance to sample at least a few miles of the Appalachian Trail this year. Next week, we'll be taking a look at endangered and threatened species that call the National Park System home and the legal battles that swing to and fro over gaining them Endangered Species Act protections. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rabincheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. 
National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.